Hi and welcome to the podcast. You're having tea with Alice. This week's episode is with Charlie Duncan Safri, who I met doing the stand-up philosophy uh, show, which he runs, and we had a really lovely chat. I enjoyed talking to him. We were in Edith's Cafe, which is in Crouch End in North London, uh, which is a cafe that is uh, shaped like a house. So we sat on the bed. I refused to sit in the toilet area, uh, and we chatted about philosophy and about where we are as a society at the moment in terms of academic philosophy and whether it's reaching people at all or not, whether it's useless or whether it's useful and where where the place of philosophy should be in society. We had a really interesting chat about all sorts of things. I hope you enjoy listening to it. I wanted to say thank you everybody who signed up to the Patreon. It's a real it's a real thing. It it makes a massive difference to my life and to my c- capacity to do interesting work. And I wanted to say hello to everyone who's come over from the Bugle who's been listening to me on the Bugle. Uh, This is not a satirical news show. This is Tea with Alice where I talk about interesting ideas over tea with people. I hope you like it. And uh, send me an email if you have any opinions, alicerfraser at gmail.com or hit me up on Twitter if you have very short opinions at alliterative, A-L-I-T-E-R-A-T-I-V-E. Thank you everyone who came to my preview show last night in London. There may be some more, but no dates have been locked in yet. There's one preview in York on the 30th of July before I head up to Edinburgh. Other than that, I won't keep you any longer. I will let you get on with listening to this podcast. If you do like the podcast, it is worth contributing to the Patreon uh, just as a, a token or as a if you think of it as maybe a dollar a show, I think is a decent amount. That's as much as I pay for podcasts that I really like. Uh, oh, I d- that's about as much as I'm going to push. I d- I'm not... Not my, it's not my best skill, the old buy my shit. Um, although do, uh, if you like, I have merch on sale on my website for the first time after years and years of being a comedian. I have some merch if you want, if you want a necklace that says no one's going to die, we're all going to die. Or uh, a bag that says emotional baggage or some stupid joke cards or a copy of the resistance on USB. That's what I'm selling at the moment. And if you have suggestions for merch... Hit me up on the email or the Twitter or all of that stuff. That's about it. For now, I'll see you next week. I'll talk to you then. Uh, Thank you for listening. You're having tea with Alice. Who are you and what are you drinking? I I am Charlie Duncan Safri and I am going to be drinking Earl Grey because uh, it's the afternoon. And it is an appropriate afternoon tea. That's what you should have for tea in the afternoon. You You should have a proper English... I was going to have English breakfast tea, but it's not breakfast. Do, pe- do you feel guilty if you drink breakfast tea at not breakfast? Uh, no, I mean, I, dr- I drink English breakfast tea at least two, three times a day throughout the day. Uh, you, should, you should drink as much English breakfast tea as possible, but it feels on a hot afternoon like this that it's the proper thing to do to have Earl Grey. It feels like... You feel like Earl Grey was a summer man? It feels like, well, it feels like Earl Grey is what you should have with cucumber sandwiches while you're watching the cricket, isn't it? Yes. So yeah, that is correct. I like Lady Grey myself. Ah. Um, I've never met her. Uh-huh. Uh, she's, uh, like, <laughs> she's like Earl Grey, but a little bit more sort of citrusy. Ah. Okay. <laughs> sounds good. She sounds lovely. Um, all right. Yes, yeah, so I'm going to have Earl Grey as, as, soon as, they, as soon as they bring it. Cool. And uh, have you been wrestling with anything recently? Uh, I've been wrestling with all kinds of things recently um oh i mean how how 
controversial do we want to get right at the top as of the show? As controversial as you I like. My if, listeners if, if will uh, hear you out. Okay, but uh, you obviously have very, very generous listeners. This is a space for respectful disagreement and for sorting out ideas and just for airing things and seeing if they sound good because we're in a sort of an area now where you can't as mitch said in in a previous podcast it's difficult to air an idea without being accused of it is propagating it um the i was listening to the the one that you did with mitch uh, and you know like i said i i i more or less agree with everything that mitch says mm -hmm. mainly because uh, he's a utilitarian, <laughs> and that's that means he's you know, fundamentally right about most things. Um, so you're a utilitarian. I, I am a also uh, yes, I'm a philosopher. So I, I met you at your gig, which is called Stand Up Philosophy. Yes, and um, I did mostly stand up, and other people handled the philosophy. Uh, it was good. It was, I was very glad that you did the that you did the stand up bit because I um, I had accidentally booked some comedians who didn't do an, o an awful lot of comedy. Yes. Uh, Darshan, who you saw, is brilliant and has this fantastic book out and this fantastic project that he's doing. Uh, but he, uh, you know, he, he came and obviously wanted to talk about the project and that was great uh, and it was very interesting. Uh, and but it wasn't uh, a laugh but, a but minute. It, it wasn't a laugh a minute. He hadn't come with an awful lot of jokes prepared, which is unusual for Darshan because he's, he's a funny, funny man. Yes. But I think he... I think some people he's mainly find trying to get this project done at the moment. I think people find it difficult to be funny about things that they take seriously, despite all of the rhetoric about you know you if you don't you cry you need to laugh that kind of stuff. Yeah, when that's you take true. things very seriously, it's very hard to make jokes about them. I yeah. kind of fake it out with my shows because I just put a joke very close to and behind yes. serious well, things. So I'm, I'm, I'm like in that very sort of wordplay way. I'm making jokes about the thing, but I'm not jo I'm not making the thing light or silly. S well, so this was part of the the whole point of stand up philosophy in the first place. Mm. Is and there are a number of people who get it, and you, and you obviously kind of got it and, and were very good at it, possibly because you have this kind of. That's yeah. That's just background my in some academic theory, as well as being a very good stand-up comedian. Oh, shucks. Uh, and uh, I mean, it started because there were a number of comedians who I knew had some understanding of philosophy. They'd done degrees in philosophy, or they had studied a bit of philosophy. Uh, and I also knew some philosophers who were very, very funny, and just wanted to get them on stage together. Uh, mm. Also, my PhD, which was in the philosophy of stand-up comedy, really, at the time, yeah, which uh, that um, that was kind of hitting the rocks because it was very difficult to do the philosophy of stand-up comedy when there is no philosophy of stand-up comedy. Yes, the so you sort of had to do Aristotle on humour, sort of thing. Uh, yeah, well, a little bit. I yes, thank oh, you. Green wow, tea. Wow. Yes, for me. here comes the tea. Yeah. So there's a lot of stuff on humour theory, mm. but very little about stand-up as a as an art form. form and actually i mean if we're talking about this is not a particularly dangerous idea mm. but it was relatively difficult in philosophy until very recently to say i what i want to do is this philosophy of something that there isn't any philosophy about really yes um, because there's no sort of no, there's so uh, there's lots and lots of philosophy of music and lots and lots of philosophy of uh, theatre and you know, loads about specific tragedy, specifically tragedy. There's loads of philosophy about tragedy as as a, as a genre of art and so on. Um, and there are things about humour, but almost nothing about stand-up specifically as an art form. So I wanted to talk about, I wanted to write about that, and then there wasn't any. I mean, um, why do you think that is? Partly because I think 
academic philosophy is so jammed up its own anus that it doesn't want to engage with anything other than what will be published in journals. Yes, I uh, agree. It's I I I I'm going to I'm going to put this out here. I think academic philosophy is dead. I think it's I think it's pretty much dying a horrible death uh, and it's dying a horrible death without knowing that it's doing it. Yes. Uh, there are, you know, thousands of PhD candidates being churned out every year uh, well, who will never get jobs in academia and are desperate to get jobs in academia and never will. It is vaguely that sort of cancerous thing where the, where the thing that it is sort of eating or consuming is itself. So the only people who read or are interested in academic philosophy are academic philosophers. Exactly. And so it's a circle that eats itself unless it you sort of are an Alain de Botton sort of break out into... And, and the, the problem is largely that people within academic philosophy kind of sneer at people at like Alain de Botton. Yeah. And they sneer at populism and they sneer at even the idea that philosophy should engage with anything outside of academia. Yes. So people talk about uh, impact... And yes. you know, and academic philosophers talk about having to do these impact assessments as if this is a bad thing that they have to demonstrate that the, the public funding they get should make society better in some way. Yes. Uh, uh, and you know, of course, there is this there is this idea that obviously, you know, academia just by being in a society, having academics in a society, thinking about things, makes society better. And I would agree with that. Yes. But at the same time, pretty much all of the academic disciplines which genuinely do make society better are not philosophy they are <laughs> they are in um, uh, they are in things like you know technology and biomedicine and all of these things yeah i think there is a, a sort of a i mean it's the eternal battle right is the the purpose of art and i think most artists would agree that populism is not the only mark of good or successful art no, that's true. It's certainly so not the only one. And sometimes, you know, depth of impact is inversely proportionate to breadth of impact. Yes. So something can reach a lot of people, but very shallowly. It's very rare that something will hit many people very deeply. Yes. Uh, but equally, I don't think that it's the right thing to do to just, as you say, have your head up your own ass. Yes. I, and that, so that, if that worked, would be great. The problem that I think has happened with academic philosophy is that the things which are being researched do impact some people very deeply and they are the other 20 people who publish in the journal that that's, <laughs> you know. Yes. Uh, you know, it's people who are looking for, you know, uh, there, there's a handful of journals read by a handful of people. Uh, and you are right? Yeah, yeah, I've got okay. an eyelash in my eye. Oh, no, okay. Um, It'll be fine. You can't see it. It will be fine. Okay, all right. There's, there's a handful of journals published by a handful of, people and read by a handful of people all writing for each other and all of the research funding follows that uh -huh. and this is this is the problem that, oh thank you very much um and that's that's kind of a problem for for anything that would justify public funding yes uh, although i'm you know i'm all for i'm all for you know the arts and so on being publicly funded um but uh I think people, n there needs to be something that makes a difference to someone in some positive way apart from people publishing in journals to each other and the publishers of those journals. Yes, I agree. I think arts need to be publicly funded in part because otherwise art becomes the province of either commercial actors or 
wealthy amateurs, people yes. who can afford to make it, and or else people who are willing to say what someone pays them to say. Exactly. And I think that's a limiting prospect, which is one of the reasons why I agree with my dad about you know copyright being an important thing that you know authors should be paid for their work. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but to get back to your original sort of point, oh. which I derailed you. Well, from. so that so that was how stand up philosophy started. Yes, um, was out of just this depression with how academic philosophy was going uh, and also to a certain extent I'd been doing a lot of stand-up and I'd been performing as a stand-up for years and got to the point where I really wanted not to have to do the same tedious material that was driving me nuts yes. uh, and wanted to be able to talk about things about philosophical things wanted to be able to discuss with audiences philosophical ideas yes which is not a thing you can usually do a stand-up gig you can't kind of come out at most stand-up gigs and say oh so what do you think so hey you in the front row what do you think justice is yes. and can you give me an example and having been teaching philosophy in a s I used to teach philosophy in a school as well uh, mm -hmm. I sometimes still do teach philosophy in schools that's the most exhilarating thing when you have a this dialogue of ideas and people arguing with each other in a room yes. is the most wonderful thing and stand-up comedy seemed for an art form that is supposed to be so interactive to particularly in a lot of comedy clubs be becoming depressingly didactic yes the comedian coming on stage delivering a certain amount of very tightly scripted material um when there's this wealth of material in the room of like you know there's you could be you could have like you know 30 to 100 people in a room all with like interesting ideas that could be being used in the jokes and, and that's and it seems to be a shame that that all of those people's brains are being wasted. Maybe I'm being too nice to the average yes, comedy but audience. without wanting necessarily but to go into the, like, what do you do for a living, kind of. Uh, well, the other thing is I've always hated comedians who ask people what they do for a living. Yes. <laughs> uh, that, was, that was another problem. I would always, even, even when I was emceeing gigs, uh, and I got to the point where I was emceeing quite a lot of gigs, and would never ask people what they do for a living. I'd always ask them, you know, who, who do you love and what does that mean? Yes. And often that uh, you know a period of no laughs would follow <laughs> so uh so anyway stand-up philosophy came out of all of that just you know being frustrated at how stand-up comedy needs this laugh 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 all the time elf lyons who did stand-up philosophy recently said that the thing with stand-up is you is you need to keep the balloon in the air yeah you need to keep the laughs going and how nice it is to be able to let let the balloon drop for a second and just say what you think yes and that's really good but dangerous in a stand-up comedy club. Yes. Uh, to say, uh, this bit's not going to get any laughs. I just have to tell you what I think. Yeah. And there are some people who can get away with it. I quite like I quite like doing that, dro dropping it and bringing it back up. Yeah. That's amazing. When you can stop and you can go, okay, here's some serious. That's Yeah, that's, uh, that's my favorite game. How f far down I can bring people before I bring them back up. Yeah. I mean, that's if you can bring them a long way down. <laughs> bring them as far just, you know. Someone Com once limbo. my stand-up, and I used it as a tagline for a little while on, on publicity, stand-up tragedy. Yes. Well, so since since I started doing stand-up philosophy, there is a, a show that started called Stand-Up Tragedy oh, there you go. in London that is a similar thing. Um, but that's a lot of that is not funny at all. A lot of that is public talks. It's just, oh, it is actually people just standing up and talking yeah. about tragedy. It, well, or tragic things or sad things. Oh, um, well. But it's cool. The people who run it are cool people. I... Um, I mean, do you I do like there being laughs at a gig, though. Yes, I, I, that's an another thing that I think is sort of necessary for it to be called comedy. 
Yeah. Uh, but uh, you were saying that there wasn't a lot of academic stuff on stand-up or almost nothing. There do wasn't then, no. Some people are starting to do it now. That was where I met, Mitch Alexander, was at a conference, and this is the first conference that had ever happened on the philosophy of stand-up comedy. Do this you think that part amazing. of that is um, that stand-up is a little bit like magic? People don't necessarily want to examine it too much unless they ruin um, That would be nice. You don't think it's that? You just I think it's not taken seriously No, enough. I just think that... that I think part of it needs to not be taken seriously enough in order to work. Yes. You need to trick people into... Yes. I think it's... Um, I think it's more a fetishization of high culture within academic philosophy. Ah, okay, that yes. That uh, things seen as low culture or popular culture are not considered worthy of doing philosophy about. Yeah. I think it's more that. And there's probably like philosophy of Harry Potter and so on and so forth. There, there is a book um, which has come out, which is the philosophy of Harry Potter. And you get all these books in you know, popular philosophy sections of bookshops now, the philosophy of The Matrix or The Simpsons or Harry Potter and so on. And these are, the I, I like these things. Yes. Um, I think it's a good direction for philosophy to be going I in. think philosophy should be doing the philosophy of things people care about. I think philosophers should be, philosophy is a brilliant way of saying, what what is this thing that we're interested in? Why are we interested in it? What is its value for us? And what even is it in the first? What is this concept? Yes. But can we just examine what it means for this cup of tea to be a cup of tea? And why do I value it? I mean, that's... Why do you value a cup of tea? Well, just, I mean, it makes you feel alive. <laughs> that's, what, that's what tea is for. A thrill a minute. Yeah, I, I mean, it's part, at least for me, it's sort of part ritual, part comfort, part yeah. something to do while you're having a conversation with someone. I think it's... Probably the most conversational of beverages. The coffee, you have the coffee and then you're done. Whereas the tea lasts as long as you need it to last. This is true. Um, but you don't drink alcohol, so you're forgetting about wine. Yes, I don't drink, so I don't. But then I feel like prolonging a conversation through wine degrades the conversation by the end. Uh, well, it certainly can. I mean, <laughs> I mean you can have <coughs> almost infinite cups of tea, and the conversation just gets better. Yes. Okay. Yeah. No, I would. I would go with that. Um, it's certainly the conversation curve of quality. It kind of it it the tea conversation plateaus, but then it stays good for a long time. Yes. Um, whereas with the wine, wine, the wine peaks conversation, and troughs. it does. Yes, that it has that. And then the next, the next day, depending on how many sulfites there are in the wine, there's a big trough. So there's that. You pay for it. You pay, you pay for, for the it. highs. You do pay for the highs. Um, I'm cu I'm curious while we're while we're being. I mean, you've probably talked about this in podcast before. Is there a reason why you don't drink? Is I mean, I honestly, I tend not to talk too much about my personal life on the podcast, but uh, I was born and brought up Buddhist, which meant that my ah. parents didn't drink. I remember this. I was this. deeply unpopular at school, which meant I missed that phase, other right. than people very obviously trying to spike my drinks at the rare parties that I'd be okay. occasionally invited to. And uh, so by the time I sort of got old enough and I'd seen too many drunk people... Then the other side of it, you know, as with all things, it's an agglomeration of different influences. The other side of it was that when my mum was sick, she had MS. She was, she lost at various points different different faculties, physical and mental. Right. So the idea of disabling myself, however tem temporarily, yeah, seemed sort of 
profane in some way. Okay. And the other part is I'm a I'm bit, bit of a control freak. I don't think I'd make a very good drunk. Right. And I'm too old now to start making mistakes. Like, I don't know my limits. I, I wouldn't want to start yeah, yeah, that. learning my limits at this age. Yeah. I mean, so I, went, I went the other way. I was it's more or less the package. Pretty unpopular at school. And, and then what that meant was that as, you know, as soon as I finally did start getting invited out, then just decided to go just for it. Just go yeah. for it. No, I'm, um, I'm not, I'm not but I wasn't raised Buddhist. I was raised, you know, Church of England. So wine is an integral part of that. Yes, it's sort of part of, part of the deal. Uh, Having said that, I almost never get drunk. Mm. I pretty much will never have more than two drinks. Yeah, I don't think of myself as three particularly three or four sometimes judgmental about drunkenness. I don't like. I'm not. I'm not hugely judgy. I did decide at one point in early university not to be the one holding people's hair back. Uh, Good call. Having sort of grown up in a caring role as a carer, and uh, you sort of default to that. Yeah. But then I just decided, if I do that, that is who I will always be. I'm sure it's fine for some bonding experiences, but you don't want to be there. Yes, so yeah. I tend not to do that. But other than that, I just sort of think of it as, as like sunburn, really. Everyone has different tolerances. Yeah. Everyone has a different point at which they're going to go over the, the line of what they can do. You know, some people drink but not take heroin. Some people will take heroin but not kill a baby. Everyone's got a line in the some sand. Some people will take heroin but don't drink. Yes, exactly. Uh, so it's just a matter of your of choice and what you you can tolerate mentally, physically, I psychologically, think that makes, that makes sense. Are you still a Buddhist? I'm sorry, I'm interviewing you now. Yeah, but uh, I curious. I don't know. I mean, Buddhism is is not a matter of faith. It's a matter of practice. Practice. So I would say I am not as strictly practicing as I was when I was a teenager, but I. Th- still think meditation is very useful i still probably agree with many of the kind of fundamental metaphysical claims of it you know cause and effect yeah all of that stuff i'm i mean i was brought up Theravada buddhist which is quite strict right um in terms of its interpretation of things it, it sticks pretty cl- pretty pretty closely to well exactly to the original sort of texts which yeah. means it doesn't it doesn't ask you to believe anything particularly wild. Right. It's all sort of follows on from itself quite logically. Um, so you don't have to believe in a lot of the things that the kind of more broad church, the idea of reincarnation is not quite such a stretch if you just think of it as a continuum of energy that doesn't Yeah. Doesn't have any inherent personhood or personality or soul part, then it's just easier to accept that as a working hypothesis up until you find out one way or the other. Yeah, no, I mean, all of this makes perfect sense. So I don't know. I don't know if I would say that I am a Buddhist. It's interesting. So all of, I mean, all of the claims that you've, that you're talking about, uh, the basic claims of Buddhism, I wouldn't disagree with, I disagree with hardly any of them. I mean, on what grounds could I possibly disagree with them? It would be very difficult to prove any of them wrong. Yes. Um, uh, And I've always been a big fan of Buddhism. it was the the thing I did best at in my undergraduate degree. Oh, there you go. Uh, we did a unit on Indian philosophy, and I just you know, pretty much just looked at the uh, the kind of the, the 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 middle way Buddhist stuff, and it was really interesting. Uh, and that was the thing I got my highest grades on. Oh, 
Excellent. And yet, and you know, I, and I what Buddhism is all about winning. Well, <laughs> exactly. Um, but as as practice, it's I've, it's always struck me as being worth doing. Mm. Uh, I've found meditation useful, but I w- wouldn't call myself a Buddhist. Yeah, I think also. I so that's that question. Is is is. In a, in a, in the a identity sort of a practice thing. that doesn't require faith, what is the element of identity that belongs yeah. to that? I, I mean, I don't know. I think it is just a matter of yeah, do or not do kind of uh, thing. But Which makes it very different from being Jewish. Yes, the opposite, Yeah, in fact. But th- I think the other thing about it is um, I read this Paul Graham article and it sort of articulated something that I've been feeling for a long time about my reluctance to, and I've spoken about this before, but my reluctance to have too many sort of central identities. So I even feel uncomfortable saying I'm a stand-up comedian or saying I'm a feminist. Right. Or, you know, I would rather say something like, you know, I believe in these principles because then if somebody attacks the idea, you don't feel personally attacked. Yes. And it's easier to examine it in, a, in a, a reasonable and unemotional way. Do I still believe this? Is this still something that's useful? Rather than like, oh no, how dare you say I'm a bad feminist or a bad vegetarian or like any of those things. Have people on your podcast before talked a lot about identity politics? Uh, a as couple, a, but... You know, the I'd whether questioning interested. it in general is a, is a dangerous idea or not. It has come up. I think it's a really interesting idea. It is one of the ideas of our time, so it's worth talking about again. I'd be interested in your opinion on it if you're yeah. if you're worrying about whether I'll be like, uh, hack. Well, I mean, it's I don't have anything particularly original to say about it other than that... What do you think about it? Um, it's very difficult as a philosopher or as someone who, who believes in... Someone who believes that... An that the strength of an argument should be based on, you know, uh, how logically coherent the argument is, how demonstrably true its premises are, and whether those premises lead to that conclusion logically, it's very difficult for um, for me to. Who needs truth? Very when difficult. You have values. It's, well, it's very yes. It's very difficult for me to take seriously I mean you have to take people seriously Mm. um, but very difficult to take seriously any argument that says well I am this kind of person and therefore I know better about this than anyone yeah Um, well I mean this is one of the I think sort of fraught points at the moment where kind of expertise is being replaced with experience yes which is sort of a parallel but not uh synonymous mm. with expertise like having an experience of something gives you um, a point of of uh, what do you call that um, status on that issue like you, no one can experience yes. what you can experience which is sort of the central premise of of identity politics but the two things that I have a problem with that on that I- are the whole point of human communication and the whole progress of human art has been towards uh, empathetic communication that you can to a certain extent understand someone else's experience it's yeah 
absolutely sympathy and empathy and all of those things well yes exactly the so point of art is why would i be doing stand-up about the things that have happened to me if i didn't think people could hear them or know them in some way yeah totally. even if only shallowly like truly experience something that i've experienced that's the whole point of the show yeah right is to drop you, you need to engage with people and get and get that idea of whether it's empathy or yeah. sympathy and the second thing i think is a, a major problem with this like replacing it uh, expertise with experience is that people who have been traumatized are not often rational about the thing that traumatized them no it's very hard it's extremely hard to be logical from a point of of fear and rage it's y- yes that's true so you do i think we do need to value something that's sort of built out, I mean, as a Western civilization, not to seem like a white supremacist or anything, but it's a sort of a central tenet since the Enlightenment that that you can logically reason your way to conclusions and mm. that... that um, I mean... That truth is a thing. Yes. Nietzsche... Right. <laughs> this is the t- typical philosopher thing I to I do. Oh, yeah, I think I said what Nietzsche says. It. But th- I, I <laughs> distinctly remember an interesting bit in Nietzsche uh, where... Nietzsche argued that um, that the Jewish the Jewish people he mm-hmm. said something along these lines the Jewish people invented and refined logic mm. um, and the reason that they invented and refined logic was so that after millennia of being enslaved oppressed, mistreated yes. oppressed and so on yeah, you look at the they could not be refuted in what they were saying. Yes, I have a friend who's uh, a very Jewish young man, and he he has a little uh, historical calendar which just goes, you know, pogrom, 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 wow. pogrom, Holocaust. You yeah. know, just that kind of uh, putting it in in into that framework. I mean, I quite like that Jewish way of doing things, where you get the Torah with the central text in the middle, and then around the edges you have the commentaries yeah a friend yeah. of mine is, is absolutely obsessed with this the, the commentaries that surround and then the commentaries on the commentaries like you know there's the classic two jews three opinions yeah. saying but it is it's built into their into what has sustained the religious practice because the original text is pretty old school yeah but it has protected itself against some of the extremes of some other religions uh by valorizing doubt and argument yes it's difficult though not impossible as some people in israel have proven it's difficult to be a jewish extremist yes um again i discount the very orthodox people who are out in israel perpetrating atrocities but i mean i i am in no position whatsoever to talk about anything that is happening in israel palestine i I, I have a so I mean you're doing a podcast about dangerous ideas. I imagine every now and again something about Israel Palestine comes up, and my policy on that is I will at some point go there and find out what's actually going on, yeah. and at that point try and form an informed opinion. Well, as my granny said, everyone is behaving very badly. Yeah, it looks uh, like it from the outside. She used to call Orthodox know. Jews very un-Jewish. Right. And you know how every, uh, I don't know if you know, there's a sort of a next year in Israel toast that you do at various religious occasions yep, and I'm, yep, so on yep. and so forth. And my dad once asked my granny, but we could just go to Israel. Why don't we go to Israel? And she said, it's just a thing you say. Yeah. Like that kind of, you know, Jewish. It's fascinating, though. 
doubt and skepticism and pragmatism I find appealing about that side of you know my yeah. family history I, I think that's a useful way to see the world well yes but let's not let's not take yeah. it too seriously so I long as you know they can you know the kids can go off and eat bacon and date goys so long as they yeah. come back to synagogue eventually I wonder if there is a thing of, of the the older and more um, uh, experienced a religion gets the less seriously it takes itself. Well, yeah, part of what is sustainable about sort of at least mainstream middle Judaism is that it is pretty laissez-faire. Yeah. You know, it, it accepts deviance yeah. in a way that well, makes it, it has to, and it has to be a, be a broad church to feel... Makes it more adaptable. Yeah. My, d- my dad became a Buddhist when he was 25, and he hasn't gone to synagogue since, and still if he goes down to Rose Bay and... They're all dying out now, but see someone of his mother's generation there, they'll come up, Mike, then will you come back to synagogue? They, they haven't given up hope that he'll return. Yeah. Well, you know, that's I, th- I, I think my mum probably feels the same about me going back to going back to the uh, uh, St. Peter's Church. But maybe maybe I will. Who knows? Maybe um, you'll have an epiphany. Maybe. Uh, but the... Um, anyway, yes, yeah, so th- there is this fascinating thing that, you know, it's Ju- Judaism millennia millennia old uh, you know and ha- and ha- exp- after millennia of expansion and splits and various different things you know has to not necessarily always take itself so seriously and then you know and then of course Christianity is takes itself a little bit more seriously but then you know there seems to be a point around the seven or eight hundred year old mark where things get very serious yes um, which is to an extent where certain parts of Islam are now yeah Maybe. If you think of the progress of religions as a linear process, like a lifetime, which it of evidently a human, isn't, yeah. <laughs> I mean, as a, as a as a kind of a framework for under, uh, thinking about or understanding it, I think that's a hopeful one. Yeah, I think that's one that is sort of persuasive to a certain extent, where people are like, well, let's just hope that. Let's let's hope that as people get older, they chill out a bit more, yes. and religions work the same thing. Yes, <laughs> once, work the same once way. They get the testosterone out of yeah. the holy book. It's also not true of people either. So no, not necessarily. I know some very angry middle-aged people. Yeah. The point was a minute ago that that thing that Nietzsche said about um, the Jewish people having been oppressed needed to create and refine logic and rational argument um, in order that they couldn't be refuted. Mm. Seems like a very different approach from the "this is my lived experience, you can't question it" mm. approach. Yes. Um, well, because it's very easy to refute with a contrary lived experience. Well, yes. Uh, th- I mean, the other problem with, with the lived experience... But also impossible to refute. You yeah. just end up with two completely immovable opposition Yes. Camps. Well, so, so th- I mean, yes, if you were to take it to its logical conclusion, the lived experience of the vulnerable, white, cisgender, heterosexual, middle-class male mm. um, is as valid as any other experience uh, and that therefore their opinions on gender discrimination and so on are as valid. Yes. Which is not a thing that I think an awful lot of people would 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 agree with now. They, yes. You know, a lot of people would want to say the, the lived experience of the oppressed person is is the more valid one. Yes. And that everyone else should listen to that but yes. the, the danger is as you say then you have you know there the, what what exactly what 
what fixed point is there to determine which lived experience is more valid? Which is why I kind of think that the the argument of it. But I mean, you know, I, I'm a white cisgender heterosexual male, so I. You, know, you want your experience to be valid. Well, no, it's not that. It, it's not even. That I, no, I, I, I would love to be able to say my experience is. I would love to be able to say my experience. I can't. I would love to be able to say I can't have an opinion on these things. Mm-hmm. Um, like, you know, not wanting to have an opinion on Israel-Palestine until I've gone there and checked out. I would like to be able to say, you know, I have no opinion about sexual assault having never been sexually assaulted. I would like to be able to opt out of that. But, you but can't. I obviously can't. You can't do that. You like, that's not... A th- everyone is ki- has, a, has a kind of a moral imperative to yeah, deal with issues. form an opinion about it. The problem is, is that all all I can do is listen to people who say they've had experiences and then try to figure out what wh- like what the logical argument is there that yeah. can be formed and I think it's possible yeah I think it is also possible I think it's very uncomfortable for a, a lot of people um, particularly people who are oppressed or in difficult circumstances because it's very it's very hard to say this is the point at which you become responsible for your pain or this is the point at which you become responsible for your actions that you've done in response to your pain. Yeah. So it's not, you know, necessarily often talked about except in a way that sort of perpetuates stigma but against the victims of, for example, child sexual assault but high rates of people who are sexually assaulted as children will then be perpetrators. Yeah. I don't know the exact statistics on that, and I'm sure they're very contested. But at what point does that person become responsible? How much do you allow them? Okay, a less loaded example is uh, I, there's a, a, a woman who I know uh, who is very, very, very aggressively feminist, uh, and she attacked a man in the street physically because he'd said something derogatory to her. Right. I would say that that is unacceptable. But she contextualizes it in the experience of the oppression of women throughout history, right? She's taken on board mm. sort of the war against women, the fact that there are domestic assaults in Australia, women dying at the rate of one a week, all of that stuff. Well, this is this is the other this is the other problem with the with identity politics is is that it does put every member of a particular identity group in that group definitively and to say that whatever happens to a to a member of that group is related in some way to everything that's happened to other members of that group throughout history mm. um, which is difficult when you believe in individual responsibility yes and you don't necessarily believe that people who are trying to get things right you don't necessarily think that it's okay for them to be punished this is not to say that white middle-class men should not have as much of their privilege taken away as possible i'm all for that i you know Take it away from me. See, I don't agree with that. I think but everyone should be brought up to a level. I don't. I think articulating it as privilege implies that it's something special. That not being stopped by the police on the street is something special. I think everyone should have that. Yes. <laughs> yeah. No, I would agree with that. But um, uh, yeah, I. I think. 
I uh, I think uh, I think uh, yeah I I would mean by having privilege taken away the same thing that you mean of bringing everyone up the the that it shouldn't be a privilege to not be harassed harassed in the street by police that should not be a that should not be a privilege yes I don't yeah I don't know I know it is but it's with sort of I think I think the mistake was and I might have might have said this before that you know you had the enlightenment project and the idea of meritocracy and all of that and then someone was like yeah but it's not it's not a meritocracy someone noticed that identity played a part and that's a really useful thing to notice yeah, yeah. but it's useful as a as a side dish not as a main dish yes and there there are obviously hist- uh, you there know, many true. historical ways in which uh, the history of oppression plays into where people are and, and the experiences they have in their lives. None of this discredits any of that. But you shouldn't write off logical argument or a basic principle of justice applying to individuals, mm. I think, um, because of that historical, because of those historical precedents. Yes, again, which is not to say that certain things are not loaded by virtue of your experience. Yeah. But the, uh, maybe if you think of it like a, a car, the car is the truth, you know, and yep. some cars are more heavily I lo- loaded. I fucking love metaphors. Right. Can't I keep, I keep metaphor. right, yeah. Here we go. Uh, and so you have this car and it is a fact, the car. But yeah. each car is laden with various sort of interpretations, shadings, colorings, you know, associations, uh, yeah. historical experience, and they're all loaded up in different ways. But the car is still true. Yes, yeah, okay, all right. Yeah, no, I, I would buy that. So that, that, that There is, of course, the question of who's driving. Yes. And, th- and, th- and, and should th- everyone get a go on the wheel? Well, yeah, well, somebody... Or should the most qualified people to drive have a go on the wheel, and then how do we decide who's qualified and... Well, for example, the use of, or the sort of stretching of definitions of things like assault and violence. If somebody sneers at you in a restaurant, it is unpleasant, it will make you feel hurt, but it is not technically violence no or assault even though you might feel like something violent has happened it's it's a microaggression yeah uh, but but again you know microaggressions. how do you punish a microaggression uh, so this is this is a i mean i've been talking to people about this a lot recently because it doesn't seem to be that people they get macro punishments for microaggressions yeah so so this is this is the problem is is that clearly um, there are different ways in which people have oppressed, have oppressed groups um, or you know, uh, groups who are subject to hundreds of thousands of microaggressions all of the time. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you're a woman, I'm sure people harass you in the street all the time and like those, those little micro things just niggle at you in a way that th- I, don't, I don't experience those. Um, there are things that, I mean, I'm not an incredibly tall man. There are, you know, from time to time people... You uh, know, will joke about my ar- height. Do they put their elbows on your head? And yeah, that kind of thing. Head. Or yeah. you know, for for for, for years when I was at school, those were not merely microaggressions. They they were aggressions, aggressions every day, yes. but also little microaggressions. So yes. I was called Titch for years in schools, and those things build up, and they build up resentment after resentment after resentment after resentment after resentment. And then one person does it, and you bite their finger off. Yes. Um, and but you have to understand that the person doing that final microaggression. Is the, uh, what's happened there is it's a it's a disproportionate response to that person. Yes, 
but it's a proportionate response to your all of your yeah. So so we have this problem of like how do you how do how and I I'm not I I can't answer this one. How yeah. ought microaggressions be to be responded to apart from ideally to have as many people as possible going, dude, don't do that. Yes. Don't like that's a well, there was a debate in Australian thing to do. comedy on online uh, semi-recently, quite publicly, so I can name some names at least, uh, in that there was a quite a senior Australian comedian who was, for various reasons, asking women to tell him what misogyny they'd experienced in the scene in quite a defensive way. So he was saying, well, what's happened? Who are these people? I'll get... You Not know, during I'll deal a with gig. Them. No, no, no. no okay. Online. Okay. So d tell me the names and I will deal with them, is what he said. Publicly naming names or he wanted, he wanted lots of he wanted private messages? He publicly name names. And there's this whole okay. thing where... Like, that's not necessarily useful. No. In part because a lot of the people who are doing even aggressions, but microaggressions, definitely, they're your friends. They're your colleagues. You don't want to punish the man who has for example introduced you to stage by saying that you fucked all the guys in the scene you don't want to punish him you just want him not to do it again yeah and you want everyone to not do it again and you want everyone to realize that when they think of this really original funny line about you being a woman or that your you know boobs look great in that top that they'll have a moment of realizing that that happens a lot and it's probably a bit boring yeah i think the 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 greatest problem with misogyny in comedy is that everyone thinks that they're being really original and funny, <laughs> <laughs> when in fact it's just, it's not it's not a new theme, is it? No. <laughs> just 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 shame them for being hack rather than for being misogynist, because again, that's something that is so close to their identity. If they think of themselves as a good guy, and you tell them that they've done something that is not a good guy thing, that's an that's a personal attack. Yes. There are dangers there too. Yes. Uh, th there's, there's, the, there's the Trump danger there. Yes. What happens if you tell millions and millions of working class white people, particularly working class white men, that they're bad people? Yes. And they thought that maybe they, you know, maybe they make a slightly off-color joke ev from time to time, but they didn't think that they were a racist. Then suddenly they're told that they're racists and then yeah. and then they go well fine i'll vote for the racist then yes uh and but there's if a i'm a racist yeah with my absolute good guy status i'm if doing my best yeah, not yeah, to be yeah. a racist and you're still telling me i'm a racist but it also well, devalues the term you. racist right because it, it if if you're a racist do. just because you were occasionally telling off color joke yeah then what about the guys who are beating people up or lynching them or shooting them or you yeah. know all of that stuff it, it completely you've got you've got your kind of your, your level one microaggression racism yeah. which is you know after millions of build-ups very serious and but you know and then you've got your level 10 serious physical aggression actual you know and serious dangerous racism. So the, the problem is is that for a lot of people hearing oh wait I, I did a microaggression I'm a racist therefore I must be the KKK I'm, I'm David Duke yeah, now if you're going to put me in with this group yeah and that, I think, is one of the sources of the now very much maligned not-all-men response. Yeah. When someone goes, men, ugh, gross, you know, they're so blah, blah, blah. And you go, but I'm not like that. Or I'm only like that occasionally and when I'm drunk or when there's a really attractive lady or, you know, all of that stuff. If you just go, all men are like this, 
Yeah. Then the man has a choice in that moment to try and defend his personal honor, to completely extract himself from the group, or yeah, you know, like you know, the classic. You can either say, "Well, I'm as difficult to deal with as anyone else," but (laughs) he sort of thinks he's immune from it because he's already said, "Oh, well, I'm not part of that group." Yeah. Or you just go fine then. Yeah. I am part of that group. And if enough people go fine, then then you get don't try. Oh, you get Brexit. Yeah. Um, there were. Are we, uh, are we are we short of time? Because no. I can talk about Brexit. All f- I'm not, gonna, you know, I mean we're we're right in Remain territory here in like yes. North Leafy North London suburbs. So I could say, hey, I voted. Remain. If I said I voted Leave, then you know, but I didn't. Um, I do know people who voted Leave, and they had their reasons for voting Leave. All of them dumb. But well, I think there are very 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 solid reasons to have issues with the EU and how it's oh, run. Oh, absolutely. But I I'm, I, I have very very serious reservations with the EU. But I don't um, think throwing it, none of it justified out. voting leave because of the consequences that voting leave was going to have. But um, part of the, so you know, a lot of the problem was decades and decades of people um, seeing a strain on public services, um, having a rhetoric told to them by the tabloids that it was because of immigration. Mm people being therefore concerned about immigration causing a strain on public services, then having massive swathes of the liberal left saying, well, if you're concerned about immigration, you're a racist. Uh, And them then going, well, fuck you, I'm a racist then. Yeah, which I think is one of the kind of the most obvious flaws in the kind of binary system now that we have, which is that either you are pro-compassion and therefore pro-refugees, or you are for safety and therefore against refugees, right? Yeah. And the reality is there, That's, it's there not, it's is... Com- it's more complex than that. Well, the reality is it is impossible to have a welfare state and unlimited immigration. Oh, yeah. That, d- that doesn't work. So the matter, uh, you know, the real issue is how you balance the two against one another, you know, in a reasonable way. How many people can you take without... You know, putting too much of a strain on your public services. How much of a strain are you willing to take for the sake of compassion? What are you willing to give up in terms well, of your of rights or your, I mean your in entitlements? In the in the <laughs> in the in the EU, of course, uh, that there is no obligation for any EU country to give welfare benefits to an EU migrant who has who has come from another EU country. Mm-hmm. Um, the Freedom of movement was was designed for people to move so that they could work, and the idea was if you if you know if a country needed sections of its job market to be employed, have people come and work in them, they could fill those gaps in the job market, and mm-hmm. that's what the UK did. Um, and there are provisions within freedom of movement within the EU for stop me if I'm talking about e- no, EU freedom of movement too much. I don't know enough um, about. This. There are provisions within EU freedom of movement law for a country to say well actually we don't need any more people in this industry now so if so you know uh, you know you can't and, and to say people can't just come here and claim benefits that's not a thing that happened what happened was the the uk has needed mass immigration to run its public services particularly um in terms of the 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 crappier jobs in public services people cleaning the hospitals people who are you know cleaning the schools, people who are working in admin in schools often for not anywhere near as much money as they should be on. Um, and uh, actually, you know, British people often don't want to work for that money because they want to do something more glamorous. So, you know, uh, a lot of a lot of those jobs don't 
wouldn't get done unless people were coming from the EU to do them. If, if all of our EU migrants have to leave, the NHS is going to be in big trouble. But, th but that's not what people saw. They didn't, uh, and the, the problem with the Australian Public Services was to do with funding and to do with the fact that people just didn't, you know, didn't like the idea that if they got rich, they might have to pay more tax. I mean, so which is yeah. an argument for philosophy, right? That causation yeah. and correlation are two different things. If at the same time as you're seeing many new and foreign faces and hearing many new and foreign accents, you're finding it more difficult to get a bed at the hospital. Exactly. You're finding it more difficult to get an appointment at your doctor. You're finding it more difficult to catch a bus on time. You, unless you are sort of uh, how who, who are we to question the lived experience of a person who finds himself in a in a uh, a um, a doctor's waiting room waiting for three and a half hours to see their doctor and a lot of the other people in the waiting room are Eastern Europeans. And they say, well, it's all these Eastern Europeans coming over here. I mean, the fact that their doctor is also an Eastern European uh, and they wouldn't have seen doctor at all if they weren't, that's irrelevant to them often. But, but, the, but who, who are we to question what they think is important? Yeah, I can't remember. I think I had some. Well, I mean, we're people who can use logic is what we are. Some time ago. I can't remember if they said it on the podcast and other experiences. or outside the podcast, but they had been at the gym and sort of staring into the middle distance and a, a woman had come and to do some weights and then turned on them and accused them of ogling her. Right. And my friend, who was a guy, didn't know what to say other than to sort of apologise profusely and leave. But there's a fact there that he wasn't. But she would have felt as traumatised. Yeah. It wouldn't have mattered wouldn't whether have mattered. They, of course he did he or didn't. Deny it whether he'd done it or not. But I think not to... I mean, so the other thing is, even, even in the event that you know, she had walked past and let's suppose he, being male and with, uh, with testosterone in him, the first instinctive w response was, oh... That's that pretty that pretty lady. She has a bum, yes. right? Uh, and then kind of quickly looks away because you kind of think, you know, th this you is a thing. I'm sure. I'm sure that. I mean, this is this is a dangerous thing possibly Good. to say. But it, but but being, and I was lucky that I wasn't brought up in too much of a masculine way. I'm very very lucky. Um, but society brings men up to look at women. Yes. And once you've been socialized deeply in that way and all of the mass media is like look at these women look at their bodies look at them they're everywhere look at the women look at the women men look at them look at them and then that's you and that's entirely and then discounting any biological element. and that's yeah and that's um, i mean and then uh, you know it's possibly you know the the biological element at some point kicks in and you go oh there's a there's a woman and then suddenly that you uh, you have then you're the, the rational bit of your brain kicks in and shuts down the monkey brain and goes, well, I, I, sh I shouldn't look at that woman. I'll carry on doing the weights. That makes no difference to how she feels about having been looked at. No. And yet, there is a certain amount of diminished responsibility, I would say, for the man who... If his, if his first thought is not what he would want his first thought to be, yeah. but his second thought checks that and goes... I am not a guy who will die, that I'm not going to be that guy. Yes. I mean, the fact that she would then, you know, feel ogled, you've got a rock and a, and a you know, well, like you were saying what before, happens, it's what happens there. It's what's the happened is nobody's fault, but everyone's, yeah, and everyone is 
screw and the um, and the and you know deal with it dismantle patriarchy uh, shut down all the public media that portrays women in any way whatsoever uh, and everyone just wear yeah. overalls and sacks yeah burkas for all burkas for all especially men because the no men don't need the, the burka they just need the bit that's cut out of the burka just blindfolds for men well, possibly yes, blindfolds for men. Having said that, the, there has been a move towards a certain aestheticization of the male body in recent years as well. I go to the <laughs> gym a lot more than I Hemsworth. feel like I used to. <laughs> yeah, in Hemsworth, it's his, it's his fault. I mean, this is one of the problems of, of, of capitalism is that it's much, much better for the financial state of affairs if men are buying as much moisturizer as women are. <laughs> yes, and, you know, and, and if women can be persuaded to buy magazines with hunky looking men in them although they can't we still i mean the, the male gaze is still particularly prevalent you go into a news agent and all the men's magazines have a picture of women on the front and all the women's magazines have a picture of women on the front well did you know that women are 26 percent of people who sign on to online pornography video websites uh, uh, i did not know that but they are 36 percent of the people who watch gay pornography really so of the people on the website 26 percent are women of all the people who watch gay pornography, 36%. So slightly higher proportion so women of women watching two men together. Presumably or because... Or two women together. Or two women, uh, this male pornography. Oh, specifically... Yeah, so, right. uh, I mean, that says a lot of things particularly about, I mean, the terribleness of the plot lines of most straight porn, but also the bad acting. Yes. Uh, I mean, I, I, I find porn relatively tedious. But <laughs> but I mean that's just you know. I can't say um, I have a broad and deep uh, understanding of the current state of the industry, but I do follow blogs. So. Right, uh, but those are interesting facts. Yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah, I didn't I didn't know that. So on that note, it's where one can that I'll people quote find you online? Oh well, you go to www.philosophyporn. No, it's not that. Um, it's uh, standupphilosophy.net. I think just Google standup philosophy, and there's everything to do with standup philosophy and me. Um, the uh, the the Facebook page is the most regular regularly updated. That has news of all the gigs. Uh, for people, uh, for your listeners living in the UK, there are gigs in London every month on the first Tuesday of every month. There's also an Oxford gig which runs. Um, there are occasionally Brighton gigs, and we're expanding to other towns. We do festivals from time to time. Um, uh, and yeah, just. Find stand-up philosophy and there's loads of interesting stuff. Oh, thank you so much for coming on. I hope we had a good conversation. I hope you feel happy. Is there anything you want to correct or retract? Uh, probably all of it, but... All right. Um, I'll leave that there, I think. Thank right. you very much. Thanks for coming.
Surely do.